Hey, what's up? So, Avalanche. Let's talk about it. What's, what's an Avalanche? The snow comes down real fast, fierce, gains momentum. But I'm not talking about the natural disaster. Or if it's not really a disaster, I guess, if no one's around. But anyways, Avalanche, what is it? You've heard about it. Now you're going to hear some more. It's an open source platform for launching decentralized finance applications, right? DeFi. That's what you want. Developers who build on Avalanche can easily create powerful, reliable, secure applications and custom blockchain networks with complex rule sets or build an existing private or public subnet, right? I think what you should do right now is stop what you're doing, even if it's listening to this podcast. Stop, pull over, go to the gas station if you need to, go to a subway. There's a subway like everywhere. There's always a subway, all right? All right? There's always a Kroger. Just stop in a parking lot somewhere. Go to avalabs.org to learn more, all right? Stop, go to avalabs, that's A V A labs, L A B S dot org. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to Hashing It Out podcast. Uh, I'm your host today, John Marlin, with co-host Jay Harrell. Say hey, hey everybody, Jay. How's everyone this morning? Um, and we have with us today Dan Robinson, uh, research partner at Paradigm Fund. Dan, uh, say hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. It's good to be on here. And uh, we'll, we'll start this off with uh, the standard crypto podcast intro question. Uh, what's your background? How did you get into crypto? Yeah, so I started out as a lawyer um, and I went to law school. Um, to be honest, I can't exactly remember why, um, but I didn't, I didn't enjoy very much being a lawyer and had sort of discovered that I liked programming a lot more. Um, and around the same time that I was planning to, to rage quit my legal job, um, uh, I got interested in, in Bitcoin and then Ethereum when um, that white paper uh, first came out. So um, when I when I left uh, my law job, I ended up working at a, a private um, permission blockchain company called Chain, um, which ended up getting acquired by Stellar. And then um, about a year and a half ago, uh, joined Paradigm um, as a, as a research partner. And I'm here representing uh, my own views and not those of. Uh, of paradigm and nothing that I say in this podcast is going to be investing in advice. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, uh, I find the, the transition, like how did you even, you know, go from like, how did you learn to code from having been a lawyer? That's not a typical, uh, path that, that I've seen very much. Yeah. So I, I'd been, um, I've been uh, programming for a while. Um, and just, I think there's something about, until about 2010, which is when I graduated from college, um, being going into going working in startups or going into um, 
uh, tech wasn't as maybe wasn't as fashionable. It just didn't feel as much uh, of a normal choice as it does now um, for me for whatever reason. Uh, and so, so like I never really thought about it as actually something that I would want to do professionally. And then when I was in law school, I had a startup that I was working on and realized, oh, like just the day to day of programming is so much fun that uh, I sort of will hate to miss this when I'm when I'm working as a lawyer. And indeed, I did. And then yeah. there's there's something about uh, this is this is more about sort of the transition, but. Uh, in law, when you have an idea, you have to go find someone who's had it before. Um, and if you, if you can't find someone who's had that idea before, it's worthless. And it's almost exactly the opposite from Texas. So there's, there's some room for innovation um, in law, but it's really at the margins. And for the most part, it, it felt just like a much more conservative uh, uh, industry to be in than, than tech, and particularly crypto. How did you come upon the... Uh, Ethereum white paper. Like, at what stage was it? Because I think it was. Yeah, I think I was. I think I was the first. This is a humble brag, but I think I was the first person to post it actually on on Hacker News. So pretty early on, I just came across it randomly on on like uh, Bitcoin Twitter, um, and it. I, I, I thought at least from the from the beginning, it sort of like seemed a lot more serious than a lot of these other uh, the other sort of like Bitcoin clones, which I you know it's like like any Bitcoiner around the time was kind of like uh, sort of interested in. So this would, would have been then after um, BTC Miami? Like, yes. This would have been, late, I think, late January 2014. Uh, okay. probably, yeah. Okay. yeah. So I was not in the crypto community at any, oh. in any way at that point. Yeah, that's, that's, that's still pretty early. I, um, yeah, that's, 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 really, that's really early. I think, I think there was, it really started, people really started to sort of talk about this idea of smart contracts around that time into February and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so and it was, what, it was, I mean, yeah, I think it was just, it was, it felt like it was actually trying something different um, for Bitcoin, which is very cool. Um, and what about, so you're now a research partner at Paradigm Fund. Tell us a little bit about Paradigm and, and what it means to be a research partner at a fund. Yes. Yeah. So um, I was lucky because I, I was uh, close friends with uh, Matt Wong, um, who was one of the co-founders of Paradigm uh, since childhood. And he and Fred essentially designed this role for uh, with, with, with me in mind and sort of uh, with my help, um, trying to figure out what would be most effective for me to do and what I'd most enjoy doing. So I really get a kick out of it, uh, although it may not be for everyone. So uh, a lot of what I do is uh, just sort of normal parts of the investment um, team function. And that includes uh, sort of reaching out to, to projects that are starting to be successful, diligencing potential new investments, evaluating them with the rest of the investment team, making decisions. Um, another big part of the job is helping out portfolio companies. And there, I think um, one thing, one way paradigm maybe is different from other uh, funds is we, we get pretty hands-on helping out with things like mechanism design um, and, some, and some of the te te technical uh, issues. With, uh, with our portfolio. So I was a co-author on the Uniswap V2 white paper. Um, uh, I, just, I just recently published a white paper uh, with, a, with another portfolio company, Yield, on a, on a new AMM that they're using. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and just generally helping our portfolio. And then the third area is uh, this kind of independent research. And that's where I think um, I just really appreciated having a, having a place where they would welcome me doing that. Um, and that's publishing. So I publish... Uh, Sort of, you can call them research papers, but really it's just sort of like, it's like, like sketches of ideas for things that people could build. Um, and so I came out with one of them called Rainbow uh, about a year ago, and then um, another 
um, just under a year ago called Yield, which um, eventually turned into a project that we're incubating that's implementing these, these uh, Y tokens. And so that was a case where I think we weren't sure exactly how publishing these papers would, would help the firm, but we thought, you know, like one, one of the one possible outcome would be that we end up incubating a company based on it, which happened here. Yeah, I, I find that very interesting and, and did see that progression happen over the last year. It looked like you, you put out the white paper, um, a few people read it, someone came and I think you said suggested improvements even, and that led to, you know, you basically handing the project over to them. Is that correct? That's right. So, so Alan, Alan, who's the CEO of Yield now, um, came to me and I think he, he fixed one of the core problems in the protocol, which was settlement. And he had, a, he figured out a way to settle it essentially directly to die, um, or directly to an, to a maker vault as opposed to, um, uh, settling using, using an auction or an Oracle or something. Um, so that was one of the big missing pieces. And the other was just, we, we wanted somebody who could really own it as a, uh, as a founder CEO. Um, and we think Alan's that, Alan's that person. Alan's another former lawyer. Um, for some reason, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I maybe I got to get along with him for that reason. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's just the power of putting your ideas out there and actually seeing it, it come back improved and better and, uh, without, uh, providing opportunities for, for you and, and the fun makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's extremely rewarding. Although, um, Sometimes when other, so there's, there's another project, at least one other project implementing the yield protocol. Um, and sometimes I think like this, why do I, why do I do this to myself? But honestly, like none of this would have happened without publishing the paper. Um, so I can't actually necessarily regret it that much. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I think that's a, like, so you talk about, you know, putting ideas out there, like we're living in an open source world. Um, and this maybe is going to get to like something I thought would, would take a little bit longer to get to, but is interesting to me. So it, it's everything's open source. It's all forkable. You can just copy and paste it. Uh, Uniswap is, is probably the most high profile um, company in your portfolio. And we've seen in just the past couple of weeks, we're seeing basically an explosion of copy and pasting in DeFi with mixed results. Um, as you mix and match Legos, some of them, I don't know, have some surprising uh, results. Uh, but so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on uh, these, these competitors that are emerging, basically taking pre-existing ideas and, and how one, one can build a motor on their business or, or protect against uh, competition in this world. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting problem. It's um, somewhat different from so this, this problem has, has been an issue in open source software development um, for for decades. And in fact, uh, a lot of open of potentially big open source businesses were kind of eaten by by something like Amazon and Microsoft with like their cloud computing systems, where they end up basically uh, you know they they tried to do this this model for monetization where they were the uh, they would provide support for people, but then turns out that Amazon and Microsoft can actually provide support for this open source software better than the projects themselves um, in many cases and, and infrastructure around it uh, and running hosted, hosted instances. So that's, that's a long way of saying, you know, this, I think this isn't a new problem in open source software and monet- figuring out how to monetize it. Um, it's arguably easier in crypto uh, and that's because of, in some ways easier because of tokenomics, because um, in a lot of, in a lot of cases uh, you can, you can have this sort of like concrete, um, stake in the protocol um, that anyone can own 
and therefore kind of has a, you know, you can get different kinds of stickiness from that. Um, I think, uh, so that's, 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 that's one way to do it. And that's just, and just sort of a natural uh, monetization method, right, for a particular protocol. Um, that doesn't necessarily though, stop someone from forking their way. So, and Uniswap obviously does not have a token. I think it's, I think it's one of the most important questions um, that's, that we're gonna, that's gonna have to be addressed in the near future. I think with, with someone like Uniswap, um, I think there's, uh, and these are, these are maybe more short-term moats, but I think there's a very strong mode around brand equity. And if you see people kind of dunking on a lot of the copycat clones on uh, Twitter, I think people have a lot more respect for Uniswap. And that um, leads in many cases, not necessarily to, um, uh, to more liquidity, because a lot of liquidity is very flighty and just goes to whoever's bribing people the most, but, um, but the higher volume and to, and to sort of stickier liquidity. Um, and others, I think, you know, Uniswap does sort of fantastic work uh, external to the protocol on the, on the interface and the, uh, the and analytics sites. Right now, and like a lot of these projects obviously are copy, copy pasting those, but I think we're going to see more infrastructure um, sort of built around, around Uniswap that's harder to, harder to fork out. Um, integrations are another area where I think, you know, if, yeah, if, if uh, uh, protocols, if, if um, centralized exchanges um, are, and you know, other protocols are all providing direct support for Uniswap, it's hard for another project. Uh, and Uniswap, for example, like Uniswap liquidity pool shares as, a, as collateral in, in lending protocols. Um, it becomes, it becomes, you know, that's, that's another, uh, barrier to scale before someone can, uh, can sort of do a fork. And the, the one other one, and this is kind of intangible is I think, uh, we've seen with most of these forks that, or, or copycats that people aren't really happy just, uh, just copying it, um, copying it, for example, and just like removing the fee, uh, because, because Uniswap V2 has a protocol fee switch that could be turned on. And the funny thing is just like, no one will, no one will do that because there's no way to make money off of it. Um, so people are always gonna, they're always gonna get a little greedy or they're gonna get a little too creative. So they're, you know, they, they put in something where they get to capture um, rewards from this, from this new protocol. And that makes it, um, you know, then that becomes, that becomes more rent extraction than, than Uniswap is doing. Um, or they, or they try, try to fix Uniswap by adding some feature that isn't really a feature. You mentioned this idea of, of sort of an easier way to monetize open source. I'm, I've always kind of been the opinion that um, it's an interesting way to, like if you're acting in an open source manner um, using tokenomics, it's a, it ultimately brings an incentive to find a way to make it work. Um, it sounds like that's kind of what you're talking here, but you know, what are some of those things that you really need to focus on? I mean, obviously me coming from a more branding background, I see Uniswap looking into that and, and really knocking out of the park. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's not, it can't just be tokenomics or, or is that a huge part of it? That's right. I think, I think the memes are, are probably the most important thing. Um, and what, uh, where crypto has kind of changed things is that there's, I think there's a lot of relatively strong memes in, even in like open source software. Um, I don't know, people like, a lot of people really like React or whatever, um, have strong opinions about language wars, but, um, tokens have effectively uh, monetized these memes, right? So in a lot of cases, and this is, we've, we've seen obviously just like a weaponization of this recently, where people are just coming up with every kind of food they can to, um, in order to grab this. And I think we're gonna see, we're gonna see diminishing returns from that. But um, a really strong meme is, is sort of indistinguishable from a brand. And I think Uniswap has a fantastic, uh, fantastic brand and, and a fantastic meme. I mean, um, the story Hayden founded it with um, less than, less than $100,000 in grants before launch, um, most of which went to a smart contract audit. 
Uh, it was his first programming project ever. He launched it with no governance, no uh, no fee, and and now ended up this uh, becoming the the largest um, Dex by volume by far on Ethereum. Um, I think it's it's a it's a really good story, and it's very hard to replicate um, that kind of story. It's similar to projects that I think a few years ago people thought you could just uh, fork Bitcoin by you know having slightly faster block times or um, having uh, or having slightly larger blocks. And it turns out you you there's basically no way to fork uh, that kind of founding myth. Yeah, I would agree on that. Yeah, it's 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 very it it's it's very hard to capture um, that kind of uh, leg ahead, um, and in in and of itself is is a bit of a moat, but it's still open source. Um, it's a, yeah, it's very interesting. So, um, maybe I'll just get right to it, Dan. We were just before the show, we were talking a little bit. Um, can't think of the segue other than just say, "Hey, tell us, uh, tell us about what you want you 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 were you were talking well, yeah, about what I was up to last man. night." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I'm I'm a little tired now because I had I had you know sort of one of my first um, uh, kind of late night uh, mad Ethereum uh, hack uh, nights, and unfortunately, this wasn't it wasn't an it wasn't an exploit, um, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't really a vulnerability in any project. But what had happened was, and I'm I'm planning I'm planning to. Uh, to publish a blog post on this at some point once I get my thoughts straight on it. A, um, someone had locked up money in a contract by accident um, in a way that seemed unrecoverable. unrecoverable. And uh, I heard about this in a, in a, in a Discord. And um, you know, I, was, I was just thinking about it for, for a while. And then like late last night, realized that there was actually a way to recover it. But the, by just calling a function on, on uh, this contract, the problem is um, anyone could recover it. So it wasn't just the owner of the funds. I could do it, which means I could steal it. Um, I could white hat recover it and, and return it to the, to the owner before someone else did. Um, but anyone else could as well. And this is an issue because Ethereum is, is basically a dark forest. Um, the Ethereum mempool is, this, is a war zone. And if you do anything, if you submit a transaction to the mempool, and I, I knew this luckily from... Um, having heard this from Phil Dion, who's who's experienced this himself um, as well, and is, is one of the experts on it, if you if you try to submit a transaction, anyone can see it, and they can inspect it, see what it does, and if it would be profitable for them to front run it and and you know change it in some way, uh, they do that. So by submitting this trans this white hat transaction, I would effectively be putting up a big flashing sign saying here's some MEV for somebody to capture. So um, I asked the security community. Um, I talked. I talked a bit to to some researchers who, who focus on this, um, and I tried to implement an obfuscation. To uh, uh, and this has involved a couple contracts, involved multiple transactions, um, an obfuscation that would basically prevent these these generalized front runners um, from seeing this transaction and uh, and submit it. Because again, like this doesn't require any human action. Nobody's actually looking at my transactions. It's just a program that's just checking whether it could replace it, um, and. It's really devilish because they, it's not just the transaction itself. Because you know, I had like contracts with authentication um, in the way it checks the in entire internal call stack of the um, of the contract. Now, I'd, I'd actually never seen this um, happen, and I uh, I was you know I, I I knew intellectually that it was possible, which is why we went to all this trouble to try to to, to get around this to help recover this money for this person. Um, but I had never really seen it, and. Uh, but when we actually when we deployed this uh, Rube Golden machine to try to uh, to capture it, 
sure enough, it got front run as soon as as soon as it was submitted. And so it was it was a very visceral, you know, like that moment at the beginning of a quiet place where um, the monster like eats the kid because he because he makes a sound that sort of like sets up the stakes for the rest of the movie. Because otherwise, it, you'd be like these people are being silly, right? You know, you you'd know intellectually that there's danger, but you wouldn't actually really feel it. And so um, it, it was that it was that kind of moment for me where I thought this. Yeah, like like th- this is actually a, this is a real dangerous environment, um, and you know I think actually some of our portfolio companies are uh, are working hard on on ways to try to mitigate that. Um, but I think it's it's a it's a very fundamental issue, MEV, um, uh, and sort of this, these, these mempool wars um, for for Ethereum and Ethereum security. So so it's it's I mean to that to that analogy or whatever. It's like you, you knew that this was an adversarial uh, environment and you'd heard about it and you could hear the, the, like, I don't know, the chaos and violence outside, but until you like stuck out your hand and had it shot off, um, it didn't, wasn't really, didn't really feel real to you. That's right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so I do, I also want to kind of, so unpack that a little bit. So, uh, so first of all, just maybe for listeners who aren't aren't familiar, MEV stands for minor extractable extracted value, uh, and so the idea is there that by being a miner uh, and having the ability to determine transaction ordering, um, you basically get I I suppose the first right of refusal to uh, make a transaction, um, and so so what's happening is is. A miner can simply like if they see a an arbitrage play or something that somebody submits a, a trade that uh, does a flash loan uh, trades you know to Uniswap um, and like arbitrages to Balancer or some some other some other AMM uh, the miner can simulate this see what would happen if they sent it from their own address and uh, if it if profit then then go for it so what you were trying to do I think is you were trying to hide this basically uh, make it so that, you know, you probably pre-deployed a contract, you uh, like pre-loaded it with a commitment to, to the transaction we're going to submit. And, and so just try to make it uh, a few steps and too complex for, for a miner to pull off um, or to even understand the outcome of what you were submitting. Is that true? You're, you're muted. That's right. Um, And I think specifically in this case, um, and I think in most cases right now, MEV isn't actually directly extracted by miners, although uh, that seems like a frontier that's potentially opening up. Um, it's mostly these, mostly bots, and the the money often ends up in the hands, or some of the money ends up in the hands of miners because uh, of high gas prices and these gas auctions that that um, uh, happen between these bots. Um, but uh, but that's that's uh, I think that's that's right, and there's quite a lot of money I think to be made from. Um, from the, by these bots, and uh, like, you know, like this, this transaction, this transaction was large enough for me to stay up till three a.m. trying to uh, this, this amount of money, trying to trying to find it for someone. But it was small potatoes in the uh, in the MEV game in general, and I uh, mostly. So I think you know we were seeing just like really hyper competitive um, mempool races, and uh, I think ultimately, yes, we'll probably see miners extracting some of this value directly. And right now, you know, this this MEV is definitely not benign what's what, what happened for example um yesterday um although uh, again they were only able to exploit it because of because of basically this mistake that had happened but um there are kinds of mev that are 
that are really catastrophic. So, so I mean, a, a double spend could be an example, is basically an example of, of MEV um, when you think about it. And, uh, and censoring transactions, um, you could, if you censor transactions, you can manipulate all kinds of protocols on chain. Um, and so that becomes a really, not just, not just kind of a, a, an inconvenience, but really a threat potentially to, uh, to the stability of Ethereum itself. Yeah. And so like, it's maybe hard to get into over audio, but I like, I want to understand like they, did they actually like, so that you did get front run, right. And they got the value. And so did they like trace back, like they basically redeployed the contract that you had, had set up and everything or. So they didn't have to. So um, my, all my obfuscation was basically to hide the fact that um, at the bottom of this call stack, it does this particular call to a contract. Um, and that call to a contract is just to give me the free money call. And so what they could do is just, re- is just run my transaction um, and, uh, uh, and, just, and, just, and basically like look at every internal call that happens and see if, if I did this call and replaced the, two, the address that's in this argument with my address, um, what would, what, would I make money? And uh, apparently that's what happened. Okay, so it's a fairly basic, just like swap out. So even though the transaction you submitted was fairly complex, the end result was was profit, and so this this front runner went for it. Right, the end result of this of this one particular call. If it if it if it uh, tried out this call, I see. And so it only did the call. Like it, it still sort of like. Or did it, it do exactly what you had planned to it do? It didn't do it. No, yeah. So it, it couldn't do exactly what I did because I had this multi right. contract thing. It just skipped that. Um, it did some other stuff too. Wow. It, was, it was like, it was kind of wild. I did not expect it to actually be this uh, sophisticated, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it burned some gas token. It like uh, was definitely, you know, definitely pros running this. And I think from, from what I've heard from others, like this particular front running bot has been seen around uh, in the wild before. But, you know, we, we only know about this software um, from. Uh, uh, it's like a black hole, right? We know about it because of its effects. Um, nobody, nobody, no researchers like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Phil has ever, has ever really seen, um, for example, like the, the, the actual software these guys are running. You just have to infer it from the behavior of what happens on chain. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. We've seen, we have like, we did uh, consensus diligence did a bit of research into like, if we could kind of like honeypot, uh, by like, you know, deploying what looks like an obviously uh, vulnerable contract. Um, you know, so you, you there's like one ETH in it. You have to submit 0.1 ETH to to extract it, um, and then I don't know. We would try to front run you on it. Uh, I think what like it ended up just that uh, it didn't quite work out in the end. I'm trying to remember exactly why. I think it was that the front runners are. Uh, yeah, just well. Actually, I think I described the mechanism slightly wrong. But the the thing was that we thought that like we would make it look sneaky. And, like a human might read the contract and think, "Oh, I can get money out of this," but the bot's not even being careful reading carefully. It's just simulating it and realizing quickly, "Oh, this is enough. There's nothing here." That's right. That's right. And in a lot of ways, I think the the AIs uh, the, that are doing this are too stupid to fall for a lot of the tricks. Um, and that's yeah, you know, I think we, we discarded a bunch of ideas that would sort of like obfuscate this um, in various ways by making it look like we, it was withdrawing different tokens or something. Just because if the dumb strategy of look at every call and see if I made that call, would I would I make money? Um, would just it just it just cuts through all of them. And this is this it's a really difficult problem because um, it's uh, you know like this this 
uh, fundamentally, yeah, and like, like for this transaction to be executed on chain, um, it has to be public. And in theory, someone could just construct the block that it's going to be included in, see that it would make this money, evaluate this, and um, and find that call in the middle of it. And there's a call that's like the call itself is not permissioned at all. So um, there's really sort of like essentially no way to avoid that. So the only the right now the mitigation is to try to make it just computationally more difficult, which is what we were trying to do um, for the for the attacker to um, to find it. Yeah. Hey, fascinating. Uh, on keeping on the topic of MEV for a moment, um, this is something I haven't seen talked about a lot. But but so Optimism, uh, the builders of of optimistic, well, one of the they're using optimistic rollups to put an EVM in your EVM, um, which I think is kind of mind blowing. Uh, and so you know, on the topic of scaling. Uh, and you know, through layer two solutions, I have this sort of uh, doubt or concern that like the more top heavy we make uh, Ethereum, uh, the, just the more uh, incentive we create to uh, to execute a 51% attack. Um, and, and it seems to become to me that like if you can, that you, with enough financial engineering, enough large transactions on enough layer twos uh, and enough different tokens even, you can think of a token as a simple layer two almost in some sense, right? Like when, when, the, when the transaction value of any given block is starting to eclipse the, the security budget of, of ETH issuance, um, this starts to feel like, to me, like a real risk. Um, is, is, is MEV somehow like actually possibly a solution to this? I'll just, there's a lot there. I'll just, I'll just leave it open to you. I would agree with that before you ask the question. Sorry, you, you agree with what in particular? Just this idea of too many layer twos on top of themselves potentially leaves the stack vulnerable on the underlying chain. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think, uh, I think this is a concern long-term for the sustainability of, of generalized smart contract platforms is that, yeah, people can uh, basically build so much stuff that becomes top heavy. Um, and only, you know, the, the Bill Gates' definition of a, of a good platform is something where the value created is greater than the value captured. Um, and uh, that's, in some ways, possibly a definition of what could be an insecure uh, situation. So I think, you know, I think this is a fundamental problem. Um, and I think there's, there's some solutions. So one that would that involves changing the general chain architecture um, is something like Cosmos, where you have these app-specific chains, where each uh, chain only sort of permits the, the behavior um, uh, associated with that particular app um, and then can extract sort of a reasonable amount of the value from it that is needed to secure the staking token for that particular um, chain. And so that's that's a little easier. It's a little more attractive of a problem than um, trying to capture enough of the value on a Turing complete chain. Um, and so so that's 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 one approach. Um, although you do lose, you know, you lose, I think, a lot of the benefits of having of having a Turing complete um, smart contract chain. The uh, some other approaches that I think um, are promising at layer two include um, uh, the one proposed by Optimism, which is a portfolio company of ours. Um, and uh, Optimism's approach is uh, to basically have a sequencer that's responsible for for ordering transactions. And this, you know, this would have avoided the problem last night if there was an honest sequencer that we could have submitted this transaction through that, that controlled access to this to this contract, basically. Um, then our transaction would be confirmed before anyone else would uh, would by the sequencer before anyone else would see it. So um, 
that's so that, that's that's sort of one approach. And then that there's there's potential for that sequencer to basically fund itself um, uh, and still be decentralized by by extracting benign MEV uh, potentially. Um, and then benign MEV uh, includes stuff like uh, being the first trade after a uh, on Uniswap after the after the true market price has changed. Someone has to do it. It's a good service for it. Um, and if that could be directly captured by miners, potentially it has the security. So that gets to what you were saying, which I think in some ways MEV is is a solution to the problem, um, to, to, to its own problem, which is that um, if MEV is quite valuable, then continuing to extract it, to be able to extract it, especially if you can extract it in, you know, in a benign way, um, could basically subsidize the, uh, the security of the entire chain. You mentioned ordering. Um, do you, what are some of your opinions with, like, obviously there's not enough information known out there, but if we look at sort of, too, in terms of mempool, do you think uh, with um, Beacon Chain being essentially a metronome for finality and ordering, do you think that could could help that, or is that, or is it still the same same problem is is more or less there? So I think proof of stake certainly helps with the the limited problem of of fifty one percent reversion. Um, I think that you know, like, like just just the slashing um, and proof of stake, I think uh, helps enormously with that. Which is that after some point, you can sort of be guaranteed fi finality um, with a very high degree of economic security. Um, I think the these other problems um, with with transaction submission. I mean, I think the ETH two architecture isn't really uh, isn't necessarily final enough for uh, to be able to evaluate that. Personally, I think that layer twos like optimism. Um, are going to play a really big role in ETH2, and one like ETH2 goes very goes together very nicely with optimistic or zk rollup, um, which are these these systems that uh, depend on the data being available but not necessarily executed by everyone. Um, because what ETH2 uh, phase one really excels at is is ensuring data availability. Um, you can get massive throughput um, in theory on on data availability, and then if you handle execution at the at the second layer, essentially. Um, then, then potentially that 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 improves some of the scalability issues, and then yeah, so I think execution of the second layer, and then potentially um, these MEV, um, uh, yeah, preventing preventing malicious extraction of MEV uh, could hopefully be done at the second layer. So that could that involves um, having having sequencers um, like Optimism Plans to have um, where you have some some extra process, either either um, a semi trusted party or a uh, or some kind of like external con other consensus process for ordering transactions. Um, and the worst they can do is kind of is at some point exit scan by by changing the order of some transactions. Um, but basically, then you you have to have some kind of exit valve uh, escape valve for that. <laughs> um, all right, let's see. Uh, let's let's talk about quickly about some some of the other projects you're involved in. Um, uh, I'm particularly curious about. Um, YDI or, or yield, I think it is mm -hmm. in general. Um, it sounds like a very interesting project, um, but definitely something that has, takes a little while to wrap, wrap head, heads around. So let's hear about that. Yeah. So to, to some degree, I think we're coming at financial and in, in DeFi, we're coming at financial innovation somewhat backward in that um, this innovation of the perpetual swap um, and uh, crypto trading, which you know it started on centralized exchanges like BitMEX, and I think we're starting to see more decentralized things with that, um, is a really novel, interesting approach to, to leverage and lending. Um, and uh, it's perpetual. It does it at this, at, and it's perpetual because it has this floating rate. 
um, the floating interest rate. And so it's an extremely powerful thing. And what we've seen with most like DeFi uh, lend, borrowing and lending systems so far in synthetics is that, is that we, um, synthetic assets that is, uh, like, like DAI, is that yeah, it, they, they all have floating interest rates. And the interest rate is basically set um, either by governance or by a formula uh, in order to, um, or in, in, in Reflex's case, by, by an algorithm. Um, and I can, uh, we'd love to talk about that. Um, uh, Reflex are another portfolio company of ours. Uh, but the uh, what what's actually most common in traditional finance and lending is is fixed rate uh, uh, borrowing and lending. Um, it's by far the majority of the of the market, and we haven't really seen that in DeFi. And there have been some approaches to it. Um, I thought that the approach that had been tried um, gave up too much in terms of uh, say fungibility, like loans with different interest rates uh, weren't fungible. It was, it was basically, you had to find a, have a peer-to-peer market um, for, uh, for we had to find someone willing to borrow for the exact same term um, at the exact uh, rate that you wanted. Um, and there was no easy way to get out of the position early. So the, you know, so I think that was the, uh, uh, that was basically, that was the impetus for um, designing Y tokens, um, YDI, which acts um, more like how how fixed rate markets work in, in traditional finance, although I think it's it, to be honest, I think it simplifies some stuff about that as well. Um, and YDI does this basically by being a, a, a similar to a analogous to a zero coupon bond. So the price of YDI floats until expiration. It matures when at maturity, it's worth one die, and uh, up until then, it floats. It trades at a floating price, and the market just tells you basically what this price is, and the price implies a particular interest rate. The price and the time to maturity imply an interest rate. Um, and so that's a way to basically get market determined interest rate, uh, fixed rate interest rates for any particular uh, time period. And the nice thing about this is that um, lending wide eye is uh, essentially just just buying it and holding it. You just buy wide eye with die and you just hold it and it appreciates over over time because of it. you buy it at a discount. Um, and borrowing is just uh, it's, it's similar to, to maker. You just uh, mint wide eye and then you sell it. So you don't have to find it. And th- this means that all these solutions that we've come up with for improving liquidity between ERC-20 tokens, um, so like Uniswap and other AMMs are an example, um, they, they all can be leveraged for, for, for uh, improving liquidity in borrowing and lending um, because this is just really ERC, uh, ERC-20 trading. Um, and, but in fact, we did actually come out with a paper um, that, that improves potentially on this uh, AMM. Um, I've on existing name and designs for this very limited use case of being uh, a wide eye die um, or a Y token target token trading pair. So you're just you're you're really just using the AMM uh, as an oracle to get a price uh, to gauge demand for uh, to borrow assets and using that to set the interest rate. Well, so so I mean, the, the price is the interest rate, or really, like it, it determines it. Like we're not right. we're not like we're not looking at the price and saying like aha, that's what the interest rate should be. It's literally the price at which you can buy this tells you what interest rate you can you can borrow or lend it at. Right. So I will pay ninety five cents today right. to get a dollar in a year, and that's yep. guaranteed. Yep. Um, and the AMM, it's 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 a it's a fun paper, although one of the more esoteric ones that I've uh, that I've written because it it shows how you can derive these invariants like Uniswap um, uh, or like or like or like this one with a uh, by solving a differential equation. Right. I, I I actually think that there's some a lot behind what you just said, right? Um, which is fairly mathy and technical. Uh, 
So you just said like you can solve, uh, can you repeat that and, and yeah, you can, what the implications are? So you can, you can find an invariant like, um, like Uniswap by, uh, that satisfies a particular property by expressing that property as a differential equation and then solve it, solving it. So a, um, a differential equation is, a, is an equation that relates a function um, to its, its own derivatives. Um, and the nice thing about any constant function market maker like Uniswap or, or a balancer curve is that the slope at any point, so the derivative of this curve at any point um, is equal to the, the negation of the price because it's, you know, it's, it's this, it's this, uh, um, it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to describe visually here, but um, uh, at any given point, the amount that you send in to the amount that the ratio of the amount that you send in to the amount you get out is the price. And so for Uniswap, the, the property that it satisfies is that it always has a 50-50 allocation at the current price, at the current price that it offers. And if you express it as a differential equation um, and then solve it, it tells you X times Y equals K um, is, the, is, the, is the relationship between the reserves that satisfies that particular property for, um, uh, for it. And uh, something similar happens when you try to derive the, uh, the uh, one that we use, the yield space AMM um, that we describe in the paper. And that's, uh, that makes, that satisfies the property that the ratio of the, of Y over X is the interest rate, um, that is offered at the current time. So it's an, it's, that's why it's called yield space. It's an automated market maker in yield space and interest rate space rather than in quote price space. Okay. Yeah. That is definitely a a complex idea. I, you know, for listeners, if that didn't make hundred percent sense, don't feel bad about it. Um, but it, it does. It does sound like it. It is pretty fascinating. What you're basically saying is, you know, if you have a relationship that you're looking to achieve, um, you can. It, it provides you a, sort of a mathematical way to say, okay, well, this is the relationship I, I'm looking for between these these assets. Here's what the I don't know if ideal, but like what the the, the equation that I need to uh, put into my for my pricing function in the market maker. That's right. And yeah. um, I think, you know, th- this one turns out to be a pretty simple one because why tokens are not that complicated. Um, I think the holy grail in this potentially would be a uh, automated market maker that could op- market make options. Um, and so basically it, you, you, if you could imagine like expressing like the Black-Scholes equation for the Black-Scholes formula for, for valuing options um, and express it essentially as, as this differential equation and then solve it, um, you could have an automated market maker that takes in time to mature uh, or time to expiration um, and like underlying asset price of an option um, and prices it along a curve that um, that tries to sort of minimize the amount of loss that currently AMMs have as a result of time decay um, for their uh, uh, for for options that they trade. So yeah, so because right now right now trading options on like Uniswap um, is is pretty difficult. Um, you end up losing losing a decent amount um, to sort of target treasures just because essentially how, how volatile options are, and that's potentially predictable. But I think that, that's, that's much more difficult math than I'm um, uh, right now able to do. So not that I haven't tried to look at it. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what, what, your, what your vision is. Like, you are pretty deep into the DeFi space, and part of your job is to, you know, come up with ideas about the future and where this is headed. Uh, what do you, if you had to, you know, not make concrete predictions necessarily, but think about uh, how we're evolving, uh, how the, the various primitives will 
combine and continue to um, morph and uh, breed, if you will, what sort of things do you think we should look forward to? So it's, it's a lazy answer, but I do think there can be, uh, there's a lot to learn from traditional finance. And white tokens take a lot of inspiration from how fixed rate markets work in the, um, in the real world. Um, obviously, I think a lot of people have been trying to do option projects, um, uh, opens an example. And um, I think, so I think there's, there's, there's a decent amount where I've just sort of catching up to do there. Um, but then I think there's also like kind of extraordinary amount of, of, um, uh, of innovation that can happen at the edges of, of these kinds of things. So I think, um, not to toot my own horn too much, but I think like the, the yield space AMM is not something that we took from traditional finance, just kind of uh, pops out of, um, of how these, of how these uh, particular instruments work. But um, it's something where, you know, uh, anyone can, can come up with a mechanism like this, um, which is pretty cool. Like I, 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 was, I was a lawyer, um, but at no point was I in a position to like, to kind of like invent new, um, new, new mechanisms, new, uh, uh, new products uh, in this particular way. And so I think, I think necessarily, you know, we're, we're not gonna, I, it's impossible to predict some of the, some of the cool stuff we're going to see um, because the reason it will happen, uh, the reason it, and the reason it will be in, uniquely enabled by crypto is that it'll be so creative that no one could have come up with it before, including me. Are you worried that some of these token mechanisms um, are are not necessarily built for regular people. You know, they're they're taken from finance and they're they're great products. And obviously, there's a chance for people to learn um, and make their own mechanism design. But for the the vast majority of people, it's it, you know, it's it's gonna it's just gonna like oh, that's another die. Well, why don't I just use die? Yeah. Um, so I I think the um, the answer is basically yes. And I think. Um, there are a limited number of, of applications that have gone um, what we would consider in crypto to be to be more quote mainstream. Um, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin and ETH themselves, uh, I think are um, I think Uniswap is in that category. Um, I think Dai is in that category. Um, I think a lot of the innovation um, is going to be under the hood. And really, in crypto, you know, we're still quite early in, in sort of building out this infrastructure. I think a lot of these primitives are not going to be they're not going to be user friendly. Um, uh, on day one or, or essentially ever. And the, the, they're there to basically serve as tools for the rest of the ecosystem um, to be able to, uh, to sort of take advantage of them. So like, you know, the, the traditional financial system is enormously complex. Um, and, but like my interaction with it um, by having a mortgage is, is somewhat complex. Like I don't understand my mortgage. Um, but actually under the hood on this is like, is a, is a very complicated financial product that allows like something like a 30 year fixed mortgage. Um, because there's, there's all kinds of weird optionality and everything embedded in that, that is that is just abstracted away and is, is only possible because there are these uh, degenerate sort of uh, uh, option markets and, and people have put a ton of work into figuring out how to price all these uh, strange things. And so, yeah, so I, I think, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, the hope is that eventually we'll have a better financial system from the ground up. Um, but I'm, I don't have too much hope that it will be much more understandable than the, than the current one. Yeah, I think that that's it's it's I've I've kind of walked that journey myself recently of uh, frustration with DeFi and how hard to understand it is, and then realizing, oh wait, I absolutely do not understand finance whatsoever, and and almost the reason that it's like because I don't, 
it, there's like an uncanny valley or something where you can get close enough to understanding DeFi. Or for me, at least, it's like there's this achievable possibility that I could understand what's going on with these things. And so I find it terribly frustrating that it requires so much effort, whereas um, you just give up and let go with uh, the mm -hmm. finance system right now. Um, do, do you think that there's uh, possibilities perhaps because of the auditability that on-chain finance provides, um, are you aware of or have you thought about um, technologies to make it more approachable and you know, perhaps like visualization tools to enable normal human beings to understand what they're interacting with? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think um, you know, and Solidity's come a long way on this um, of sort of like automated tools for uh, from a, from sort of a programming perspective, um, it would be, I, I do think it would be kind of fantastic to have, um, uh, tools that could sort of help, help make these things more like automated, uh, visualizations of, yeah, exactly. Smart contract systems. Um, and especially from a financial perspective. Um, I think, I think we're, we're a long way from that. It's the kind of thing though, that could be built, um, on this because it's, it's, uh, amenable to analysis because it's, because it's written in code. Um, and that I think is that's one of the most promising things. It's just that we can end up with this with a set of developer tools that like people would you know would dream to have in in uh, traditional finance or in traditional law. Um, you know I think like it, it would be really fascinating. Uh, I would I would love if I was like working on it. I was not a, I was not a contracts lawyer, but um, if I was like working on a contract uh, uh, as a lawyer, like an actual you know uh, uh, paper contract signed in blood or whatever, um, to be able to fuzz it right to be able to say like. Oh, what you know? What would happen under all these situations? And just try out a bunch of random scenarios to it, right? And you know, in, in financial, in finance, they do have they do this. They 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 have models and simulations that can show what would happen in various situations because they've they've modeled the problem space. But in uh, crypto, you could actually uh, you can you don't have to it doesn't have to be a model. You can use the actual contracts themselves as the model that you that you can run stuff against. Um, and potentially that could uh, yeah, potentially that could reduce the the kind of errors that caused the, the 2008 financial crisis. Um, I think that's very speculative, to be honest. I think that kind of fi like financial crisis are very difficult to avoid um, and uh, in any system. Um, and I think actually, the, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on how the Fed has, um, has mostly acted for uh, actually since the, since the crisis, to be honest. Um, but I think, you know, like there's, there's uh, the, potential, yeah, the potential to sort of design the system um, in a way where it's more robust to these things, that would be the that would be the happy case. I, I, I think or, you make a, yeah. I think you make a really good point here. You know, um, yes, it's pretty degen in the back background, and you don't don't really know what's going on. Um, but you know, two thousand eight really did prove that. Well, we really don't know what's going on, and it was really unclear what was go how all of this was connected. Um, I think bringing visibility even partial visibility, like let's say 1% of everything gets, is slightly visual, you know, there's vis uh, visibility there, a little bit of analytics and suddenly you have a lot um, better decision-making power real time, or even if it's not, not, um, you know, not the best, it's still far better than what was in existence um, just over 10 years ago. That's definitely the hope. I think, yeah, but there's, there's there's cost of transparency as well. Like this, there's the um, 
then yesterday that happened to me, right, is, is basically an example of this where radical transparency can be very bad for you. Any smart contract exploit um, very often uh, could have, would have, would have been prevented if, um, yeah, if you couldn't, if you, if certainly, if, if you couldn't read the code of the contract and if you couldn't run automated tests against it, um, you know, and, and that, uh, that's just a, that's sort of a trade-off that we're making. One nice thing about that trade-off is that it's, it's sort of forcing us to, to really harden the infrastructure um, now while everything's still a little bit silly. Um, I think the, just the adversarial uh, environment is so harsh that hopefully what, what emerges out of it are these, are these relatively robust institutions. I think, for example, um, like governance minimization, um, I think a lot of people had kind of this instinct a while ago, including Uniswap. Um, I think we've really seen it play out that like governance is a liability that should be minimized as much as possible. Um, or localized to a particular, you know, to, to, um, to solve a particular problem. Um, and that like general purpose uh, governance, it, it vastly increases the complexity of what you're, of what you're um, dealing with. Awesome. Uh, I, I think that's a pretty good place to, uh, to wrap things up. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation, Dan. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to uh, uh, share with the listeners or just let them know where they can find you and, and follow you? Yeah, best place to find me is um, is Twitter. Um, so a lot of these snarky takes um, I try out on Twitter to see uh, before I bring them on to podcasts. So I'm at Dan Robinson on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank Great conversation. Thanks for having me on.